everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome on this beautiful, beautiful Tuesday. Boy, that the camera really take trick your shirt, which is light blue, and turn it into a bright, I know, little dynamic. Blue. Yeah. <laughs> so we're glad everybody is here today. I appreciate the fact that it's a beautiful day today, and and appreciate that you are here. And you know, we really are closing in on the end of Isaiah. We are. Because there's only like 66 chapters, right? And yeah. we're in chapter 63. So so we sort of are in the home stretch, as I called it in my first little online comments today. And then we're going to go to the New Testament. That I've decided. I haven't decided what yet. Okay. But it's going to be something I haven't podcasted because I would like to build up the podcast library that St. Andrew would make available to Whoever. other churches, perhaps. Right. Sure. Or for sure. So... Anyway, we're glad everybody is here. We sure um, are. Thanks for joining us. I know, know it's beautiful outside. You could be raking leaves or... Yeah, see, good reason to be in here. Walking your dog. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, raking leaves. Yeah, that used to be fun. That used to be fun. <laughs> when we were really little, yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, okay, so big weekend. Big weekend wow. at St. Andrew. Um, on one level, you know, it's lots of changes, as you probably know, that we announced that we are um, uh, leaving the UMC. We're going to be St. Andrew Methodist. We are going to be independent for a while. There are other churches that we I'm, I'm confident we will affiliate with and mm -hmm. try to create some structures that are better suited for the world we live in today than, than and get out of the, the constant political wars and everything yes. that's consumed the UMC since I've worked at St. Andrew, which is now 20 years. Yes. So anyway, I but day to day, like today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, next Sunday, nothing's really changing. No, right? Nothing's no. changing. You know, I think eventually there will be a new website address for the church and some new email addresses that drop out the U from the address, but really, that's it. Um, otherwise... We'll just, we want to press on with the mission that we have, right? And my particular little mission is try to help people get into the Bible and embrace it and understand it better and enjoy it. All of those, including the enjoyment part. Yes, absolutely. Right? All right. Absolutely. So, anyway. And, um, you know, Arthur said yesterday, people have questions. They can call the church. They could call their pastors. They could ask them about anything. Yep that they wanted. Um, I don't know about you all, but yesterday, I'm imagining this is the truth for everybody, I had never seen that um, little clip of Robert. And um, even though it was sad, it was, you know, just because he's not here with us, it was also very comforting to know um, that this is something that Robert was struggling with himself for a long time. And I'm sure he wished he was with us yeah, As he we he was struggling this. to do what he knew needed to be done right. because That's he told I mean. me like three years ago yes. what direction he thought we would probably need to go to be mission focused, like he talks about, talked about all of the time and talked about in the videos. So, but hey, he it wasn't easy for him as I know it's not easy for a lot of people at the church but no. things do change and change is hard. We sometimes. have, have to it keep really our eyes is. focused on Christ and yeah. Um, we're just, anyway, it's going to be good. It really is. So, let me just see. Um, okay. So, all right. 
Anything else today, Patty? I don't think so. Uh, should I tell everybody what I was doing for the last hour? I was playing fashion show in my closet. Oh, I'm trying to find things without spending any more money to take to Israel with us. Now, what we really call that is you were shopping in your own closet. I was shopping in my own closet. Yeah. And sadly, I have found that some of the clothes from those previous trips no they longer They don't work, huh? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's been a while since we've done it the land is. trip. It's been six years. It's been six years. So, six um, years. When you're on the cruise, it's not that big of a deal. You're thinking, I can have something for two days. But, you know, you, you, you're trying to pack smart and realizing it is a working trip. It's a wonderful trip, but it's a working trip. I mean, for everybody. That's busy. It's busy. It's busy every day in a wonderful way. So, anyway, that's okay. about it. That's about it. All righty. Huh? I'm going on the other side as soon as you open us in prayer. Great. Thank you. Lord, um, we come to you in prayer today. We come to you as your people, part of a fellowship that you have called us here to, a fellowship that is wide and deep and is bound to Christians who have come before us and those who will come after us and Christians across all the various denominations. Just uh, keep reminding us of that and um, fill us today with lots of energy and enthusiasm uh, as we continue our journey through um, the scroll of Isaiah. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Thank you, Patty. Let me move on out of your way. Give you some room here. Oh, we, we do have Rudy here today. So there is ah, a possibility yeah. we may have a guest. Yeah, we, it's possible. He's sleeping in there right now. He's, I guess in doggy years, he's somewhere around 130. <laughs> or he acts like it anyway, so... So we'll see. But where we are is we're going to start um, in <laughs> Isaiah 63 at verse 14. Okay? And this, this, is, this is basically verse 15. Uh, 63, 15. Um, these... This is part of these conversations, if we could call them that, between God and his people about, um, some cases, where God has been, what has happened to the people, why it has happened to the people. Um, sometimes their own penitence, they're calling for God to come and to rescue them. Um, occasionally we saw there was even a bit of, of, of finger-pointing um, at God in that, you know, it's just, it's all, it's always the ever-present reminder that in Scripture you can find the full range of human emotions and interactions with God and um, because that is what characterizes genuine relationships, right? The more trusting a relationship that you have with someone, the more, the more you can be, um, you can express to them how you really feel about things and they can take it and perhaps pour a lot of grace out upon it so that's that's how i kind of see some of these conversations that that the israelites have with god so now and at verse 15 we're coming upon this prayer of penitence of repentance um where 
again, the people have to wrestle with their part in what has happened to them. And, and they, they do know that. They do know that they are in jail. Remember I had the slide with jail bars on it there for a while, a few mm -hmm. weeks back. Yep. Um, and, and so they, they really get that. But sometimes these things take a long talking out. Maybe that's the way I, I, should, I should see this. They take a long talking out. And so let's just look at verse 15. And these, this is the people now um, uh, uh, through the prophet calling up to God. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Right? Because for the ancients, where is God? God is actually up there. So for you and me, this is very metaphorical because we know God isn't, like if I go straight up, I'm not going to run into God. But for the ancients, that's not how it was. Um, the sky was sort of the bottom of the throne room of God. And, and so God is, God is up there. So they want God to look down from heaven and see from God's lofty throne. And then they say, where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. Okay? We want always, I think, in our world in 2022, to make God very soft and squishy. Really almost indifferent about what people do. And we find that we are repelled by the idea of a God who gets angry or a God who calls his people to holiness with earnestness and really, and really means that. And, and not only warns them of the consequences, but perhaps even meets out some punishment to a people who keep breaking the covenant they've made with God time after time after time after time. So I think somewhere between that idea of a soft, squishy God like a little stuffed animal and, you know, the God who hangs people over the fires of hell until they repent, uh, kind of a la Jonathan Edwards, we, we need to find a fuller, more fully dimensioned view of God. Because, frankly, I could take you to a lot of places in the Old Testament where God is unpredictable, where God is even dangerous. And why would God be dangerous? The same, maybe, the same way the police are dangerous to a criminal. I think, I think that's, that's, not, that's not a bad metaphor. Um, where God is dangerous and God is wild and unpredictable and uncontrollable and refuses to be put into a box that we design when we say, well, here's what God has to be. Because I've worked it all out in my mind. I've worked it all out in my heart. Well, God has to be this and God would never do X or God would always do Y and God would never do this and God would always do this. The Bible is constantly kind of blowing that stuff up. <laughs> I think really. So they look at God and they say, well, Okay, God, your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are 
our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, that's Abraham, husband of Sarah, or Israel, acknowledge us. Israel is Jacob. Israel, Israel, um, one who struggles with God, Israel, that is the name given to Jacob when Jacob wrestles with God, maybe, at the river in Genesis, I don't know, 26, something like that. So, what does that mean? Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledges acknowledge us. I'm <coughs> really pretty confident um, in saying that that is a way of saying, well, my ancestors are so ashamed of what I have done that they have turned away. They have averted their eyes. It's a little like, you know, in, I, I guess in, in across history, there have been stories of families where things happen and family members basically turn away. And yes, 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 we should turn back and the rest of it, but it's a way of expressing, I think, the Israelites' own sense of shame about what they have done, because what have they done? Well, they signed on to a covenant with God and have dismissed it, skipped it, forgotten it, pretended it never happened, chased after all these foreign gods and goddesses and the rest of it. And so Abraham, it's like Abraham and Israel stand on the side over there, just shaking their heads and turning away. But you are, back to 16, first, first phrase, but you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledges, you, Yahweh, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So what are they appealing to? They could say, well, you know, our ancestors, they're, They've kind of like turned their backs on us in shame. But you, Lord, are our Father. You're Redeemer. You are going to stick with us. You see, it's kind of like the prodigal son. You know, Arthur talked about it yesterday in the church meeting. It is kind of like the prodigal son. That father, even though so abused by the younger son, who basically comes and says, Hey, Pops, I'd like my inheritance, and you're not dying fast enough, so I want it now. And then goes away and wastes it all. That father, there's no indication that father ever turned on that son. And as soon as that son came home and the father was the least bit aware, off he ran to grab him and pick him up. So to me, it's sort of like here, they, they deep down know, the prophet knows who God is in God's essential character. And God's essential character is to love and forgive and be merciful and just. Okay? Verse 17 of chapter 63. Why, Yahweh, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our, harden our hearts so we do not revere you. Harden our hearts. In Methodism, there is a doctrine called prevenient grace. It's a very old word. 
Certainly a lot of people trip over it. But it's simply met in old, not old English, you know, I guess it's old English if it's a few hundred years ago, preceding, that's what it was. So call it preceding grace. And it is the doctrine that says um, in Methodism that nobody would even have an inkling of looking for God if God did not pour out some grace that precedes salvation. It just... It just is like a grace that enables us in some way to hear God and turn to God. Now, does it make somebody do it? No. They can still say, well, I don't care. It's sort of like, let's just say that what it does is enable you to see the truth about humanity, that all of our hearts are darkened by sin, which is really the starting point in coming to Christ, that you have a problem that you can't fix. And, of course, a lot of people will say, do say, well, I don't want to listen to this. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Fine. But it's that prevenient grace that even brings the issue into question, that enables people to see it all. And I think and is a way of putting this verse is that God, in trying to discipline his people, has withdrawn that grace, thus hardening their hearts. And you might say to me, well, Scott, these are God's people. Why would, they, why would he do that? Is it that important that he discipline them? Can't he just hug them and tell them they're loved? Well, no, because the Israelites have a purpose. They have a purpose. This is not, God doesn't call Abraham simply because God wants somebody to hug. God calls Abraham because it is through Abraham and his family that all of humanity will be reconciled to God. Right? So, so that purpose, you can't ever lose sight of that. God, God needs these people to do their part. And we are still at a place in the story when God is really determined to try to help these people do their part to keep the covenant to be the people God created them to be now later on with the advent of Jesus God does himself what the people proved unwilling to do but you can't say God didn't give the people a chance again and again and again and again so I don't know that's the verse. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you? Huh. Have I you lost know, stuff? I'm so sorry. Where are you? 6317. Oh, 17. I'm so sorry. I just told somebody we had already moved on to 64. Oh, no, no, no. We started sorry. at we started at 6315. Absolutely. And I am yeah. so sorry about that. Everybody squared away? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It, uh, I realize we're doing all this online and everything, and it's we run into a few problems with this. But you know, there we go. We're doing Isaiah, right, Rich Morgan? You asked for this, buddy, and a lot of people have been along for the ride. <laughs> I'm 
I'm so that, sorry about that, Susan. I just put, just put the wrong thing for yeah, Susan. Yeah, that's okay. Because I honestly, I thought that we had just turned the. Turn but Susan's going to pour a lot of grace on you, Patty. She you is, see how it she's works. She's such a sweet lady. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the Israelites look to God and they say, Why, Yahweh, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Now, another part of me says they're just wanting to point the finger at God. We all want to shift the blame, right? We don't... How many people really want to take responsibility when they screw up? And these people have been screwing up for centuries. So that may be a little part of this too. So then they appealed to God in the second half of verse 17, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. You called us to this. <laughs> we have screwed it up, but, but you have called us to this. So come on back. You know, it's a little bit like when um, in Exodus 34, when... Uh, 33 and 34 when when the people when Moses taking too long to, to get down the mountain and the people make the golden calf and down at the bottom which is the for a Jewish rabbi that's the worst moment in the dark in the Old Testament that is the darkest moment um, of all and so God says well y'all just go ahead without me I'm not going I'm not going and Moses appeals and persuades God to, to go with him in this incredible incredible sequence um so here they're just saying to god return for the sake of your servants the tribes that are your inheritance we are your people you called us to this for a purpose right for a little while your people possessed your holy place those relatively few centuries in the scheme of things that the people were settled in judea and jerusalem and had the temple, which was God's sanctuary. But now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. That's what the Babylonians did. They destroyed the temple and made off with the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 19. We are yours from of old. That's poignant. We're, we are yours from of old. You have not ruled over them, the Babylonians. They have not been called by your name. They're not your people. They're not part of this purpose. <laughs> what is the irony here? The Babylonians have not been called for this purpose, the way Abraham's family has been called, to be the ones through whom the families of the earth will be blessed, but the Babylonians will be blessed by the purpose given to the Israelites. That's the irony. Wow. Ever think about it that way? Nope. Yep, yep, the Babylonians. The, the ones who are, I mean, at this point, the Babylonians are every boogeyman you ever imagined in your life, all that rolled together into one. And, and they will be blessed by the family of Abraham. It is hard to get. I mean, I, I understand because our hearts are burdened by sin and, and such grace and mercy and true 
love in action is something that we really find might find easy to pay lip service to, but find it hard to do in in real life. You know, what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Well, the Babylonians are the capital E N E M I E S <laughs> of for the Israelites at this time. And what would Jesus say to the Israelites? You're supposed to love your enemies. It's just, it's just, it goes back to this tweet or somewhere I heard the other day, Jesus loves, remember, Jesus loves the person you hate the most. It brings me short, up short every time I think about it lately. So... All right. Any thoughts or questions about that or anything else? No. Before we go on to what, Patty? Now we move to <laughs> Isaiah 64. You would think we choreographed this or something, wouldn't you? Maybe we should tell them we do. <laughs> we plan all this out ahead of time. Oh, and now fame is a first. Oh, gosh. It's just so powerful. So now the cry goes up to God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Just take the sky and the clouds and the heavens, tear it open, God, and come down. That the mountains would tremble before you. We need you. We need you. We need you. You know, when you get frustrated. What at, I found. Oh, no, stop. <laughs> we have too many devices yeah yeah that was Siri questions. wanting to jump in this game yeah. a, and Siri just on my watch I mean that's like unbelievable so um, okay so people bring to me their frustrations with the culture and the country and all this stuff in 2022 so <laughs> don't dump all that on me what you, the place to start is looking upward Raising your hands and saying, Oh, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And the mountains travel before you so that everyone will see the truth of you, the truth of the good news, the truth of the kingdom. Yeah, that is a cry. That is a cry for, for you know, God to do God's big thing. Um... Another irony is that when you come to the story of Jesus, what is the story of Jesus? What is the incarnation other than the embodiment of this verse? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And indeed, God does just that. Just not the way people imagine it. People imagine that when it happened, the Messiah or God himself would come down and be all in power and might and wonder and glory and the mountains would shake and the seas would still and, you know, the enemies would all fall to the ground shaking in fear. And instead you have a slippery, slimy little baby born to a young woman, hardly more than a girl, in an out-of-the-way place of no account called Nazareth in Galilee, 
on the eastern fringes of the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus. That's what you have. That's that moment, you see, is the fulfillment of the cry. It's the answer to the cry of verse 64. Oh, that you would come down. God does. And most can't see it. They won't see it. They won't grasp it. It's just too, too what? Too freaky, too unexpected, too... This gets back to that wild God. See, God is not predictable. God is wild and dynamic and 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 takes all of our guessing about what God will do and who God is and sort of rearranges everything. Who would think that God would be born to a young woman in Galilee? So, who would think that God would get himself crucified? That's 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 silly talk, isn't it? Now, well, it's true. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. This is when I wish I had the voice of James Earl Jones. You know... For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. You know, my, my mind goes to, of course, the story at Mount Sinai, which when the Israelites, God, God leads them, God leads the Israelites out of Egypt across the Red Sea and they, make, they head down to Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God is, his presence is on top of this mountain in the thunder and the lightning and the clouds. That's the theophany, it's called. The T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. The theophany that is God's presence. And there's quakes and thunder and everything big shaking. Well, okay, great, good, good. That's that's God's presence. When Elijah runs away from um, Jezebel, he heads back to that same mountain. And when he gets to the mountain, he encounters the presence of God. But not in the wind, not in the earthquake, he encounters the presence of God in the sound of sheer silence. That's how the NRSV translates the, the um, Hebrew, probably better than the still small voice. In the sound of sheer silence. So again, see, God is unpredictable. God takes our expectations and turns them upside down. So we have to leave God, it's <laughs> a funny way to put it, started to say, we have to leave God room to do that. Well, God, God's going to do it, whether we leave him room or not, whether we think we're leaving him room. What we have to is, is adjust ourselves so that we don't miss it. That's the great sadness from Jesus' day. God came down, 
and almost all of them missed it because of the ironclad expectations they had about who God was and how it would happen and how the Messiah would be and the rest. It's so ironclad that they just, they just don't see it. And I get that there's lots of verses in the prophets like this one and others about earthquakes and mountains and fires and all this really big stuff. But there's also the sound of sheer silence that greets Elijah at, at Mount Sinai. So, verse 4. Thoughts, questions, anything, anybody out there? Patty had to, Patty had to step away. You know why? Rudy. <laughs> so... He's poking his head around the door. We don't, we don't trust him completely if you catch my drift. He's a very old dog, so we keep a close, close tab on him. Okay, verse 4. Now, since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's another dominant, another important biblical theme, being willing to wait for God. We're in such a darn hurry in our world today that we're not comfortable just kind of waiting for God. Everything has to happen really fast, or you start assuming nothing will happen. Um, sometimes it takes a long, long time in our terms um, to really see what God is doing. So... Verse 5, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? That's the universe, you know, that should be the universal question. It's not the universal question because people think that they can, first of all, they don't acknowledge that they need saving, and then they imagine that they can save themselves with enough therapy or whatever. Money, power, whatever. How then can we be saved? Because they know they're a sinful people. They're not really deluding themselves on that on that score. They know they are. They say all of us have become like one who is unclean. That's ritually unclean. That means that means unacceptable to God. It doesn't mean missed a shower. It means un unclean in the ritualistic sense of being unacceptable to God, unholy. Um, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Okay, those filthy rags are in the Hebrew rags used by women when they are menstruating. Oh my goodness. Yes, and menstruating, for those who have read, what was it called, Patty, the red tent? Red tent. You know that menstruating was, during that time, a woman was ritualistically unclean. So, right, so the second part repeats the first part just in a different way. Unclean. Unclean. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Oh, man. Yeah, except see, we're the ones who commit them, right? So we, are, we all shrivel 
up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. I guess I've have I guess sometimes that's not a terrible perspective that you know we're 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 like leaves and the winds of sin just blow us here and there. The and we if you stop it is all us. It, it's our hearts. It's, there's no sin apart from us. My dog can't sin. Oh, little Rudy over there, he might, you know, do something he shouldn't on the floor, but he, he doesn't sin. Sinning is a is is unique to humans because we're made in the image of God. We're the ones who made a covenant with God. Um, we are the ones who were given stewardship over all of creation. And so then, you know, the prophet on behalf of the people in verse 7 says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. If you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Come on, God. Come down. Rend the heavens. Come down. I know we need rescue. You're hiding from us. See, that's such an important first step. I know it sounds funny to talk about God hiding from somebody. I get that. You know, and of course, we're also Christians. We're also talking about all of this post-Jesus. But what a one... Imagine just for a minute that everybody in the land, everybody on the globe looked at themselves in great honesty and said, we've been given over to our sins. What do we do? We're my sin is controlling. Up. My sin is controlling me. What, what do I do? Who I was, can? Yeah. I'm so who, sorry. I keep interrupting. I thought you were finished. Who can save us? Yes, Patty. I was just going to say, like, we're all doing what's right in our own eyes. Well, see, that's the thing, right? Um, that's where you always have to catch yourself. Well-meaning people can get caught up in that. What Patty's talking about is the last verse of the Book of Judges. This, it's a condemning verse, not a helpful verse. It's a condemning verse. There was no king in all Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But our eyes are clouded by sin. Our hearts are clouded by sin. So you, the measure of what is right is not our heart. The measure of what is right is God. Sometimes it's clear. Sometimes it's not as clear Sometimes we say it's not clear because we just don't like it. So, you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet, you, Yahweh, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We're all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. These are, this is beautiful poetry. 
Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem is a desolation because they're burnt out hulks left by the Babylonians, populated by the poorest of the poor, who have no money, no chance of rebuilding anything that really matters. Verse 11, Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. Hmm. A lot of things I could do with that verse in fire preaching it. What do we treasure? Does what they treasure lie in ruins? Does their relationship with God lie in ruins? Are they... Do they not see the hope that lies beyond a burned-out city? Excuse me. You know, sometimes when natural disasters strike, you 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 see people respond in different ways. Some people are really they really do see the hope that lies beyond the destruction of of what they have. Um, others struggle with it more. Verse twelve. After all this, Yahweh. Will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? That means that means um, beyond reason, beyond beyond what is reasonable, right? Because the idea, you know, I'm, we have sentences, jail sentences, that differ based upon the crime committed and some other factors, but. Um, they know they're being that they know they are in jail. That's the that's the best way to think about it. And they want to be out of jail, and they want to for their sins to be forgiven. And um, so think back to an earlier passage that we looked at that was used by Jesus. Um, to say that you you have you have paid you have paid your sentence you have you have served your sentence double over and Jesus has come to set the captives free and to free the prisoners recover sight to the blind and the rest of it you know those are not those are not for the Jews in Jesus's day those were not metaphorical words they were words that had real concrete meaning attached to them and here those kind of words would have real concrete meaning attached to them because these people are in are in jail okay you've got anything patty you would like to add well i take a swig of my water no sir i don't Sometimes I think in Isaiah and some of the other prophets, you need to just let yourself enjoy and admire the poetry. And we're really we're reading it in translation, right? So it it's probably not all meant to be picked apart, like we might pick apart a paragraph in Paul. Um, it's poetry, and it needs to be read as poetry and taken in whole sections. As, as poetry. 
So, now we go on to Isaiah 65. And now we shift gears. We shift gears because now we're going to hear from whom? Is it that same suffering servant, the righteous servant, the anointed servant? Whose voice are you and I going to hear as we begin to make my um, way? Is it simply God's voice? I think it is God's voice based on the very beginning. Okay. I guess I'm going to find out. I guess we'll see who we hear. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations. <laughs> a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens. That's what pagans do, because where would the Jews offer sacrifices? In gardens? No. Where? In the temple. In the temple. Offering the sacrifices in gardens, burning insects on altars of brick. Okay, these are, these are pagan practices. Who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, waiting to talk to the spirits and all that kind of stuff. No, that was not the Jews. That's not who they were supposed to be. That's not who we were supposed to be. I find it very dismaying that there are all of these Christians who some in our world today, 2022, seem to get bamboozled into thinking they can reach out into some spirit world or whatever and find distant relatives that they're going to talk to and all that stuff. That That is not a Christian view of reality. You know, when you die in Christ, you, you go on to be with Christ. But it's just... I don't know. It's it's just something that sticks with us, and it's something that that here um, in the scroll of Isaiah is working against it, and really all the way all the way through the Bible. There's the famous story of of King Saul going to the um, witch of Endor in the at the end of the book of First Samuel to conjure up the spirit of Samuel or some such. And it's, it's, it's a story that is meant to be a warning, not an encouragement to turn on the ghost channel, on channel, you know, whatever, whatever, on cable. But anyway, okay. Verse 4. These are listings of people who, who, have, who want nothing to do with God, who sit among the graves, and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs, 
If you wondered who he was, God was talking about before now, <laughs> you'd know. Who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat. Meaning, what could that be? That could be a pot full of what? Shrimp. Lobster. Because shellfish are part of the unclean animals. Could it also be um, the impure meat, meat that was offered up to idols? Could be. Hmm. Didn't think about that one. Could be. I just took it there. It's just the intrinsic, un, intrinsically unclean animal meat. But could be. I guess the only thing that might make me say maybe not so much, Patty, is just because the second line is like the first line, just expressed differently. And see, pigs are simply unclean animals. Okay. So that would tend me to think that the second line, the broth of impure meat is simply about unclean animals because there's pigs that are unclean but there's a lot of other stuff that the jews didn't eat based upon their law so you have these people who make sacrifices in their gardens they burn the incense on little altar stuff altar bricks they hang out in the graveyards at night that must be fun keeping their secret vigils so that they can you know talk to whomever they eat the flesh of pigs they enjoy their shrimp cocktail who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. <coughs> wow. Keep, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Hmm. Gosh, my mind instantly goes to our modern day. For most of human history, people knew that if you viewed sort of God as the judge and the questioner, that we were the ones in in the witness box. In the um, in England, they call it the dock. If you've seen British films, you know the person in the dock stands up. The the party is being charged. But we live in a culture in the last 150 years where we want to switch the tables. You see, we want to be the questioner. We're going to put God in the dock, and we will, maybe we will pay God some, some attention if God can convince us that God is worthy of this, because we are really very special. And I have my heart, and I'm just going to listen to my heart. And if I, God, if I, if I think that you really measure up to what my heart says you should be, well then... Okay, then we'll be good. That's completely backwards. So here they say this, keep away, don't come near me, I'm too sacred for you. Such people are smoking my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. That's not good. <laughs> you could do all right, a whole little paper on the nostrils of God in the Old Testament because it's one of the metaphors that, that's used and so sometimes it is like the prayers of the people or a pleasing aroma lifting up to God or the smell of the sacri proper sacrifice in the temple is a smell that flows upward and is pleasing to the nostrils of God. Well, this is not pleasing to the nostrils of God. This smells like burning what? I don't know. Not good though. Such people are smoking my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. 
these people who keep saying no to God, no to God, no to God, because they know better. It's just amazing to me how relevant some of these ancient passages are about humanity in 2022. And I think the reason is because humanity in 500 B.C. or 1000 B.C. was in many ways the humanity of 2022. We have more technology. We know all kinds of things that they didn't know. But this, this deep, the deep-seated problems that flow from an unwillingness to acknowledge the God who made us is the story of what went wrong with with humanity. Verse 6. See? It stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps. Both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says Yahweh, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. <clears throat> if you ever read through the book of Kings, it is a book filled with this tragic story of a people who should worship Yahweh, but usually don't. There's, when, the, when the kingdom of Israel splits in two in the early parts of the book of Kings, the northern kingdom heads away and the leader of it, Jeroboam, even builds a golden calf. He makes two of them, actually. He puts one on the southern border um, at Bethsaida and one up at the northern reaches in Dan. And he wants to build a new religion um, around these golden calves because he doesn't want his people who have separated themselves from their cousins in the south to head to Jerusalem in order to make sacrifices and thus maybe mending everything and Jeroboam being out of a job. But throughout the story of the two kingdoms, especially the northern kingdom, it's just time and again, time and again, the people turn to these pagan gods and goddesses and they erect shrines and temples and totem poles and all these other features of the Canaanite religions around them rather than remaining true to Yahweh. And that's what these kind of passages are all about. That's why we're talking about mountains and hills and all that stuff because that's where this pagan worship would happen. And the, for, for the ancients, they would tend to put their religious shrines on the highest places because the highest places are the ones closest to whom? God. To God. And if they lived in a desert plain, they would build a highest place. That's the pyramids in Egypt. That is the ziggurats in Babylonia. Um, The Temple Mount in Jerusalem is where it is because that mount, Mount Moriah, was 
was the highest place right there. Going way back. I mean, that's that's how it that's how how it was. So. <clears throat> Yeah. Linda was asking a question. Um, she said, I wonder if pagans used unclean animals for sacrifice. Would, would pagans know about unclean animals, or would everything be? The pagans would have no concept of clean or unclean animals. That was purely something God gave to the Israelites. Okay. So the pagans would, I'm sorry, I'm about to sneeze. That's not good. One second. <laughs> So, clean and unclean is a, cat a way, way to categorize animals that's purely within the Jewish religion. Something given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai meant nothing to the pagans, who would not even know about it. And if they knew about it, they wouldn't care. They would just say, well, that's that weird Jewish stuff. What the heck do you mean they don't eat shrimp cocktail? That they don't know what a BLT is, a good rump roast, a good, a good pot roast out of pork or whatever. No, they wouldn't know about that. So, no, um, they, they just sacrificed animals. And in all cultures that I'm aware of across the globe, the more value there is in the animal that is given over to the God in sacrifice, the more that sacrifice would appease the God or would accomplish whatever the the particular religion wanted to have happen with you, whether you were Aztec or, you know, you were worshiping Baal or whatever. So, and <clears throat> that, if you follow that through to its logic, that's why some religions practiced human sacrifice. Because that would be the most valuable thing of all. Right? The Jews never did. Sorry. It's okay. You're not going to forget now, are you, Patty? No. Okay. <coughs> My old heartburn medicine. <laughs> ah, getting old's fun. Okay. So, anything else over there, Patty? No. Nope. Verse 8. This is what Yahweh says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So I will do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. Okay, so first of all, notice that this is not, this is not about grape juice. What is this about? I'm just going to point this out. What is the blessing found in a cluster of grapes? It's about wine. Yes. Yes. Not 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 the virtues of grape juice. Because wine in the Old Testament is a blessing given to the people. So what he's saying that um, uh, even if you have a cluster of grapes that only has a little juice, it's still juice in it. It could be good to be put to a good purpose. It's it it's a blessing. Okay? So God is saying that even though Israel has been all of this, even in all, all of this sinful disobedience and the rest of it, in that there is a cluster of goodness. Okay? A cluster of goodness. And God will not destroy them all. 
What's it a little bit like? It's a little bit like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When, when, when God is talking with Abraham um, in Genesis 18 and they're looking down over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham knows that God is about to destroy them and says to God, now God, wait, 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 wait. You can't destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people down there. And God says, okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't do it. And then Abraham says, well, wait, wait, wait. What if there's 40 righteous people down there? And God says, okay, okay, if there's 40 righteous people, I won't do it. Then Abraham says, well, wait. What if there's 30 righteous people down there? And God says, okay, I won't do it if there are 30 righteous people. And so Abraham negotiates God all the way down till it's evident there aren't any. <laughs> and the cities are destroyed. So... <clears throat> but it speaks to God's desire for there to be an everlasting remnant. We've talked about that in this class. Even here in the book of Isaiah, this, this theological theme of a remnant, a faithful people that God could use to go on and to accomplish God's purposes. And a way to think of Jesus is that Jesus is that faithful remnant of one. He's that one faithful Jew. That's might be all that's left, but that's all that's needed. One faithful Jew who will love God and love others every day and in every way. So, um, in the book of Revelation, there are terrible things that happen and terror, all this kind of stuff. But there's a remnant that goes on through these terrible happenings and so forth that are depicted in the book of Revelation. Um, this, this remnant theology, it's often called. So God says, if there's a little juice in the cluster of grapes, the people are going to say, wait, wait, don't destroy that, that cluster because there's still a blessing in it. We can get some more juice out of that. God says, so will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. You know, that is, that is the, like if you were to pick a call sign <laughs> or a, um, theme song for Zionism, this idea that emerged in the 19th century that that there must be a homeland for the Jews in Palestine, that would be it. That's the way a lot of Israelis see their life and their world today, that Israel is there to be that home, to be the place. It's their inheritance. It is the, these, these are mountains and plains given to them by, by God. And it was, it's there that the Jews must live. Now, there's a whole lot of people, of course, who don't agree with that, but... Um, verse 10. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. And the Valley of Achor, these are places in Israel, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. 
it is it is bound up in this relationship for my people who what who seek after God God seeks after them they're to seek after God it's not to be a one-way street it's to be a two-way street it doesn't mean that people can save themselves they don't have the ability to save themselves but they need to listen to their hearts and when God comes to save them let themselves be saved <laughs> to seek after God. Mm -hmm. Verse 11, But as for you who forsake Yahweh and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called you, but you didn't answer. I spoke, but you didn't listen. Didn't listen. So fortune and destiny up there in verse 18. I think we'll talk about this and close right here because it's a, it's a convenient place as any. A lot of the way, a lot of the words that we use in English come from the pagan religions of the past. Fortune is one. We wish someone good fortune or ill fortune. Fortuna was the Greek slash Roman goddess of destiny. In the Greek primordial myths, there are the three sisters, the fates, F-A-T-E-S, our destinies. These are really very they're very pagan ideas because they don't they don't have any space in them really for a god who cares for you and loves you and works with you and who wants you to seek after god every day day in day in month out month in month out you're not nobody is trapped in their quote fate or their de destiny or any of that. Those are secular ideas that come from a world a long, long time ago. I was thinking about this when I was getting ready for today, and I thought of the human brain. Any scientist, any doctor, most of us could tell you that the brain has two halves. Some of us are right-brained, they tell us. Some of us are left-brained, they tell us. Okay? And the two halves are connected, and we don't function very well when they're not connected, and they're both not, and one of them's not, not working very well. So we need the right brain, we need the left brain. Paul talks about being double-minded. Okay? We can think of double-mindedness in this way. That we have a mind that is Christ's. And I know the people of St. Andrew. I know all of you who are on this, in this class right now. You do strive to be a good disciple of Jesus. You strive to hear this well. You strive to be more Christ-like. You strive to love others. You, you strive to have a mind that, that, that pushes you and pulls you in that direction. At the same time, you have this other mind 
This is the secular mind that is constantly trying to pull the first mind, the Jesus mind, away from itself or make it shrink or dominate it or get rid of it entirely. And boy, how much of our life is spent cultivating that secular mind. The words, the language, the phrases, the ways we think about so much of the world we live in and who we are and even of who God is. And so, and so what, what does Paul talk about in the famous verse, Romans 12, 1? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, <laughs> this is the Jesus brain, so that you will know what is, what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing to God. And the secular part of your mind, the way of seeing it that includes, oh, I'm just a, I'm, I'm just a victim of fortune, of the fates, of destiny, or whatever that, that stuff might come to be, that gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And instead, you operate very much within a biblical, a Jesus worldview about who you are and who God is and how this world works and and that old pagan stuff that's still stuck in our brains um, gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I don't know. That was what I was thinking about today as I was, you know, getting ready for class this afternoon. Double-bindedness. Um, and we... Why do we have, why are we double-minded in this way? Remember, we still, we still, we live in between the times. The Jesus brain is the already. The secular world brain is the not yet. <laughs> we want to live more in the already the kingdom of God and less and less in the waiting for the kingdom of God stuff. So there's a lot of ways to put it, but in any event, this little bit about fortune and destiny is talking about pagan gods and goddesses. Not Fortuna, because this is a little older. Um, this is about 500 BC, but the same idea. Pagan gods and goddesses that run your life. So, Miss Patty's going to come around, I think. Right, darling? Do you remember old, old, old comics? Like, back in the Looney Tune days. Sure. And... To me, they would sort of demonstrate what you're talking about by having the little guy on his shoulder who was dressed like Satan, and the other <laughs> little guy would be dressed like an angel, yeah. and they're both competing yes. with his mind yes. as to what he should do, how he should act. And you'd so, want the little guy in the little angel outfit to run over and kick the little, you would. The little devil off the shoulder, you right? That's, that's what you would like to see happen. And, that's what Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's that you will know what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing. And so, yeah, so there we go. Sometimes on the little devil side, he presents a pretty good argument. <laughs> Sometimes, you see, that's why that's why he persists. He d I know. Yeah, right. right? So thank you all for being here with us today. We had a, we had a good group of people, got a good, good group of folks today. And um, as you all know, tomorrow is uh, in-person class, Tuesday, 12 o'clock, down in Piero Hall. It's also streamed at that time, and live and streamed. Um, right. And we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish up 14, and we may get into 1 Corinthians 15, which means that we will, 
begin to talk about the resurrection because that's the topic that Paul turns to in the greatest chapter in the Bible on the most important on one of the most important topics in the Bible the resurrection of Jesus without which none of this would matter that's right that's right otherwise we wouldn't be going to Israel no no right? we wouldn't be meeting here at three <laughs> o'clock on Mondays okay so please join me uh, as we close in prayer Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this beautiful day outside today. And we thank you, God, that we all have this opportunity to come today um, to study your word together. It's always good to do it together if we can. Um, you can always ask questions, God, and just, I don't know, just it's just better. And we pray, God, that you would watch over each of us, Lord, as we carry on out from this moment. We pray, God, that you'd watch over us and watch over our family and our friends and those we love, Lord. And we pray that you bless us with good health, Lord, and help keep us safe. And we just ask also, Lord, a blessing for our wonderful church, St. Andrew, as we move forward. Um, we pray, God, that we would stay together as a, as a united body in the, in the body of Christ. Lord. Keep us healthy, keep us safe, bring us back tomorrow or next week. All this we lift up to you and pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Adios, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.